going off from what the previous talk was about of what was, I'm going to be answering the what ifs and being very speculative and hindsight being a lovely thing. Um, I'm going to talk to what if the TSR2 was to continue in service and the Labour government weren't to kibosh it on the head. Uh, in very much the style that I'm in, um, what I intend to sort of cover shortly over the next 30 to 40 minutes is to sort of give you a, a brief uh, overview of where the UK was in 1957 globally and as a nuclear power. I'll look at both Gore 339, OR343 as well and sort of see what the, the ask was from the UK government at the time and what roles would the TSR2 ha have um, carried out uh, and how it evolved between those two asks. Um, also, I'll look at how the TSR2 um, influenced nuclear weapon development and policy slightly as well. Um, or, and going on from there, in, when it was cancelled as well, what sort of role could the TSR2 have carried out uh, when it was um, cancelled in April 1965? And then from there, the sort of main bulk of my talk is sort of the very much the speculative, if it had continued into service, what would have happened, what, what could it potentially look like going into the 70s and 80s, for example, sort of like a timeline of events, introduction into service, um, and also looking at sort of predicted RAF um, plans as well for when it came into service as well. And then finally, looking at how the uh, RAF would have looked in 1965 as well with the TSR2 uh, in its ranks, and the legacy that the aircraft could have had, not necessarily on the RAF, but also on the UK and the wider aviation industry and Britain's foreign uh, relations as well. So firstly, the UK's global position in 1957, uh, it's a global nuclear power, it's one of the P5 on the UN Security Council and a leading member of NATO in Europe as well, providing a nuclear deterrent. It is a technological leader with uh, the first jet airliner and the comet, uh, and it, um, but on the, on the flip side of that, we do have an empire slash commonwealth on the decline. Britain's global position that it held between the wars and just post-1945 is very much shrinking and the UK is still trying to grasp at um, what the sort of, at the times it was when it had so much influence. Uh, and this is just to sort of demonstrate how the, uh, the British Empire fell over the course of the 1960s uh, or over the course of the TSR2 programme. All of those countries left the Commonwealth, and as you can see, the empire sort of collapsed quite rapidly. Uh, and very much the sort of the conception of the TSR2 was to fill this sort of air policing and global uh, influence that it would have, that the RAF and the UK armed forces would have throughout the world. Uh, then quickly also going over sort of the threats that the UK faced at the time, uh, most notably and obviously the nuclear strike from the USSR as well, where we had East versus West over the Iron Curtain going on as well, and also the threats of the USSR's very robust radar and SAM infrastructure spread throughout Eastern Europe as well, which was a formidable obstacle to overcome, and one that the TSR2 aimed to uh, overcome, as it were. There were also, as also um, uh, echoed earlier with the previous talks today, there was the threat from the US uh, and European aviation industries as well to the UK's dominance, as it were. Uh, and that's not to get sort of miss the sort of vulnerability of the UK's aviation industry as itself as well, where it was just too big and too much going on really, and it needed to be sort of the fat trimmed as it were. Now, moving on to the general operation requirement 339, um, we have covered this uh, already on what sort of the specifications and numbers that the government wanted of the TSR2, but sort of what the government wanted the aircraft to achieve, what did they want it to do? 
Well, operating throughout the globe was its primary aim, really. Um, it was to be that tactical strike packaged and delivering that tactical nuclear weapon into the Soviet Union when it decided it wanted to get a bit uh, wary, as it were. Um, additionally, it wanted to also minimise its um, reliance on a permanent operating base as well, with its requirements to uh, operate from semi-prepared landing strips as well deliver also a tactical reconnaissance package in all weathers at all altitudes, a tall order in 1957 for, uh, for the technology at the time. 343, um, very much, very, very similar to what uh, the government was asking in, um, in 339, but it ramped up the numbers in which it wanted to do. It wanted higher performance ca capabilities. It wanted uh, a Mach 2 um, dash speed and a 1.7 to uh, get into the target, as already mentioned before. And also, uh, and, and also the requirements of it to be very robust and from a servicing perspective as well, where it would be, have to be operated in the field, a box-in, box-out sort of policy, and the aircraft could be easily turned around at a retasking or at a moment's notice. And for, again, for an aircraft of the time and the technology and complexity being asked of it, it was going to be an absolute pig's ear to try and get itself around, as it were. And again, the intention of it to operate throughout the empire, be it shrinking all the time. Now, how did this affect the TSR, uh, how, sorry, how did it affect the nuclear weapons development and policy of the, um, of the UK? Uh, OR 1127, which was um, initially submitted uh, alongside OR 3, uh, GOR 339, would, become on to, would, become, would go on to become the Redbeard, a £2,000 nuclear bomb that, was to, to, that the TSR-2 was meant to carry. Uh, 110 of these mi missiles were bought and they were stationed strategically out throughout the empire to sort of meet the global package that the TSR-2 was meant to carry, uh, very much taking over from what the Canberra was uh, doing concurrently at this time, meeting CENTO and CETO obligations, Central Treaty Organisation and Southeast Asia Treaty Organisations as well, and how the UK was uh, maintaining its presence in this, in this field. Subsequently, on the back of that, the Skybolt programme, which the UK wanted to get on top of, which would have seen it become this, the strategic nuclear package for the UK, uh, there was a uh, paper released or sort of to look into the feasibility of TSR-2 even trying to carry the Skybolt uh, missile. As you can see, pictured on the right there, it's quite a big beast. Even on a Vulcan, it takes up quite a bit of space. And on a TSR-2, it would just about fit, but it would have, um, wouldn't have been able to, it would have covered the downwards-looking radar, so you couldn't fly with it properly at low level with that. Um, so once that uh, Skybolt program was cancelled in December 1962, um, the Nassau uh, agreement signed between the UK and the USA in 1962, I believe, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that saw that the, uh, the Royal Navy take on the nuclear strategic um, capability in the form of Polaris as well. So. Because of the cancellation of the Skybolt programme and Redbeard becoming a fairly obsolete, the UK government wanted a bit more of a versatile £2,000 weapon. So they um, released OR 1177, which would, as stated before, become the WE-177 nu tactical nuclear weapon, as pictured down here below. Um, it would be a variable-sized uh, nuclear yield weapon, going up to 450 kiloton um, in yield were enough to ruin most people's day, especially in the Soviet Union. But um, this was intended at the time that it would go into the TSR-2's package, as it were, in much the same way that Redbeard would have gone along with it as well. Um, but as we've seen with, uh, as sort of 
um, seen without history. It has gone on into service and been used on Tornado and, and Jaguar, just to name a few aircraft in which it was used or deployed with. 1965, this is when the TSR-2 is cancelled. Um, when, uh, at this point, the aircraft is very much in its sort of uh, teething out all of the major issues that it uh, has, has tried to overcome. It's very much trying to, it will take on, um, or aiming to take on the tactical strike role for the RAF. And, but even then you could see, see, you could even argue that it would be uh, the long-term successor to the V-Force, thus taking on the strategic mantle as well, um, to, a, to a certain extent in hand in hand with the Navy as well, with the submarine force, as well as the tactical capability. And in addition to that, it would take on the Canberra's tactical reconnaissance as well. Um, initial RAF studies also showed that they wanted to station the TSR-2 out permanently um, throughout the Commonwealth uh, with RAF Akateri in Cyprus, Germany and Tengar as well in, in Singapore. Um, it, it's very much, this demonstrates the UK's ability or wanting to hold on to or grasp onto that sort of vision that it's still a superpower. But really, and realistically, it was very much a great power at the time at best. Um, and then also, just to demonstrate its sort of um, usefulness within the sort of European spheres, because that's very much where the TSR-2, if it had come into service, I would have predicted personally that the uh, UK government would have focused more centrically on a European sphere. So this sort of demonstrates the 1,000 nautical mile radius from RAF Marham, um, where it could have striked, really. And if you see it personally stationed in, Ger in West Germany and also Cyprus, it could cover pretty much the entirety of Europe and strike anywhere, even going up to close, almost just to Moscow as well. And so it just shows the sort of uh, versatility that the aircraft could have provided in RAF service. Now, moving on to sort of the more speculative area of my talk now, and the main bulk of it as well, is what would the TSR-2 have looked like if it had come onto service? Um, I know 1968 probably would be a bit optimistic, really, if um, at the position it was in 1965, but this is purely me sort of stringing some figures really together. Uh, I'm personally what I, I, I do fantasize the TSR-2 quite a bit and as if what-ifs as it were. So it would have come into service in 1968 in, in, in my predictions here. Um, it would have taken on the uh, tactical role of the, um, uh, that the hunters would have uh, had in Germany as well. And it would have also taken on the uh, reconnaissance role as well from the camera eventually. Um, Primarily, the priority was for the TSR-2 to take on the strike role from the Canberra, with um, the first squadrons being bringing into service, being stood up first for strike role, and the, the reconnaissance role to bringing up um, when the TSR-2 was being a more established programme. Now, just sorry, just to sort of bring some clarifications, I have made a few assumptions here for, for the timeline you see here. So I do assume that the Royal Navy has got the deterrent. The Royal Navy does have its carriers as well. Um, but also, all of the preceding uh, fighter or strike programs that the RAF have going on at the time that were cancelled have been cancelled. For example, the supersonic Harrier variants, etc. And also, the TSR-2 would carry out the roles very much intended for it, and it wouldn't sort of adapt and take on new roles like aircraft are today ex uh, expected to do so. So between 1968 and 1972, you would see the retirement of the Hunter aircraft from RAF Germany and the sort of gradual phasing out of the V-Force aircraft or the sort of repurposing of them into tanker roles, like the Victor, um, as well. So by 1972, you would have seen the sort of 
the full transition of the TSR2 taking on that strike package from, uh, from the V-Force and the Canberra, four fleets coming down into one. Um, in 1972, you probably would have seen the introduction of a close air support aircraft coming in to sort of take over the sort of army air, air, sorry, army supporting role for the army in RAF Germany. Uh, personally, that could have been either a sort of a, a Harrier version or a multi-role fighter. I mean, very optimistically for the early 70s, I know. But um, the Harrier probably would have been the more suitable and more affordable option in the UK's eyes and the, sorry, the government's eyes at the moment because of the interoperability between the Navy carrier and also the tactical element of Stovall as well for, for a Harrier force. By 1975, you probably would have seen the retirement of all Canberra aircraft. I know in hindsight they did go on to 2006 for an aircraft of such versatility, but by then, by 1975, you would have had the gap of the Lightning, English Electric Lightning, coming being uh, quite old and need replacing. So the UK government at that time would have recognised uh, the need for a replacement for its fighter in the form of probably a multi-role sort of such as an F-16 or an F-15, for example. Co going on from there, you would have needed, uh, the government would have probably had to have gone for a more collaborative approach for a new fighter aircraft, especially when you're sort of talking in the multi-role domain, as it were. So um, as you can see, I've sort of in, in this program, uh, sorry, in this presentation, I've called it the European Fighter Program, sort of essentially a tornado typhoon-esque-ish um, project, as it were, and that we've sort of seen um, introduction between 82 to the mid 80s is sort of a guesstimation, as it were. Uh, this would have seen it, um, sort of modelled it more of a typhoon, sort of a general uh, all-round fighter that can take on the close air support role, the tactical strike role from the TSR-2 maybe eventually as well, uh, and also some kind of limited reconnaissance as well. From there, the, um, because of this more collaborative approach, it would have been the more economic and sensible um, decision to make really from the UK standpoint really at that point, as much as has been echoed today already. From there, um, I've now sort of, within my research for this presentation, I've looked at um, some of the sort of goings on and the potential RAF predictions or that they wanted to use the RAF initially in their sort of, um, in the early offset. So it, they did initially want it to be stationed in, uh, in RAF Germany and um, during the sort of concept phases of the project um, and also a training unit being set up at RAF Coningsby. But in 1964, they um, commissioned the Spotswood report, um, which was sort of a big analysis into the RAF resource and what the view RAF would look like going on into the future. Um, from there, it was rather scathing. So if I go, go on to this next slide here, this is sort of a, a grab from Burke um, for one of the TSR2 um, great uh, summaries, as it were, um, that I've read. It gives you a sort of a, an, the, the breakdown of numbers in which they thought the TSR2 would be positioned very much you've got RAF Germany being struck off really completely, um, Akutiri and Singapore being the sort of standout, the, the standout places which the TSR-2 would have been operating from, with a total of 140 aircraft being used um, for a fleet if it had come into, into service. Ironically, for these predictions from the RAF, they wanted their aircrew to have specialists in strike and reconnaissance, um, which is a bit ironic for a multi-role aircraft, but... Um, I thought you'd expect your aircrew air to be multi-role as well, but hey-ho. From there, the, um, when it came into, into service, the, um, they wanted the, um, the TSR-2 to be very robust in its, in its way to being operated from 
from the from well grass strips as already stated before but from an engineer's perspective that would have been an absolute nightmare logistically um as well as the technology involved it probably would not have been feasible and the harrier as i've stated before would have been the best compromised for that tactical role and the tsr2 very much more of a strategic aircraft as it were now moving on into sort of how the raf would have looked in a sort of post-1965 with a um with a tsr2 in its ranks um i've already i think the big standout from there really is that all of these in-service aircraft, you wouldn't have seen them at all probably in RAF service, and you've gone five to three fleets to carry the whole strike role. And even then, ideally speaking, you probably would have expected your multi-role fighter to take on all the responsibilities of the TSR2 as well, um, in a sort of ideal circumstance anyway. So not only have you got fewer fleets, you have um, less aircraft. Less aircraft is cheaper. Cheaper is good things for the, uh, for the UK economy as well. But then also you've brought in house a TSR2 that has cemented the um, future of BAC. It would have been the poster child sell to foreign nations as it were, and it would have made, made sure that the UK aviation industry would have had more of an independent future more and more of a dominant fu uh, future within Europe as well. From there, with the, uh, Europe, with the UK having more of a leading role in the aviation industry, it would have had more of a dominant uh, effect potentially in projects such as Concorde, for example, and also in the European Fighter Programme, where very much in programmes coming subsequently, the UK has very much, in some cases, paid second fiddle almost, in, in much as the sort of manufacturing, but also the specifications as well that have been drawn up for these subsequent aircraft like Tornado and Typhoon. Um, Moving on from there, you would have seen the, T the TSR-2 would have been the um, replacement for all of the V-Force and the Canberra, as stated before. It's when you've got so many, so many fleets being smashed down into one fleet um, in terms of capability and roles, it, it just shows you the, sort of the amount of poten immense potential behind this aircraft uh, and why, it, why its cancellation, it, it produced, well, five fleets to take it on, really, and, and again, the expectations behind the aircraft as well. Um, and then also, sort of, I touched on it already as term is the TSR2's long-term effects for the UK. Um, as I've already said, um, with the fewer fleets, you've had less ru lower running costs, ideally speaking, of course, but I'm no economist. Um, you would have had, with fewer aircraft, lower operability. Um, by that, I mean it would have had less influence throughout the world. You wouldn't have had the mass and amounts of aircraft that the RAF had in the 1980s and 90s, uh, you probably would have seen numbers very similar to what we have today, where you're talking about 100 aircraft in a fleet rather than two or two or 300, as it were, across a strike, um, strike aircraft uh, fleet. There would have been also the strategic move from the UK to move to a more European-centric theatres and be and concentrate furthermore on sort of NATO uh, led exercises and the sort of defence of the nuclear deterrent within uh, European spheres. Um, and also this, as stated before as well, it would have been a boost for the UK avian industry, not, not only just sort of um, a boost to the economy, but keeping jobs in line as well. Very much what they intend to try to do today with a Brexit um, job with Tempest, it would have been a, very, a fairly good Brexit um, project, as it were. Um, also, the lessons learned from the mergers between Vickers and Ingus Electric, 
I know this is very speculative in here, but um, you could say that the, the merger between these two companies is fairly similar. You can draw a lot of parallels between the merger of, say, formation of a company like Airbus, where you've got lots of different companies coming together um, from from long distances to try and smash together uh, to uh, smash together to make a project to work, as it were. So the lessons learned from the TSR2 program, if if it had continued, they would have ironed out these issues uh, and very much the British could have been a leading light into sort of producing uh, an Airbus company or the roots or foundations for an Airbus company, as it were. And now finally, not just um, the influence, uh, sorry, the, the legacy that the TSR2 had on Britain, but also potentially the world. Um, you, not only do you have an independent, or well, potentially independent UK in aviation industry in much the similar way in which the French have uh, pioneered and separated or protected their aviation industry as well, you would have probably not have seen the combined uh, European projects such as the Tornado and Jaguar projects as well, um, only seeing a European fighter programme being procured under this sort of hypothetical scenario. A successful TSR2 programme would have also uh, could have potentially seen the Concorde programme being sped up. I mean, I mean speculatively because of the engine um, frailties that the, the TSR2 suffered from. Unfortunately, uh, Tornado, uh, sorry, Concorde could have um, come into service potentially uh, quicker and maybe potentially cheaper with the, with those engine in, in with those engine issues being sorted out. I think my biggest though, with the TSR2 being a successful aircraft from a British standpoint, it would have very much put one, uh, a um, couple of fingers across the pond at the US, really, and to say that British means business. British is, um, British is here to sort of uh, be, um, be a standpoint for, for the UK, UK AV industry. And the, U, the US's share of um, sales would have taken a significant hit if the TSR2 had been a success, really. I know at a, a huge cost per unit, though. And again, the, um, uh, e, uh, the European aviation industry at the time would have also had a significant impact as well from, um, from a TSR2, as stated before, with these combined projects being pushed down the line, as it were. Uh, the TSR2, as, as I've already stated before, it would have had a fan, found, in fa profound impact on how the RAF strike elements of it would have, would have looked as well, with having fewer fleets, fewer aircraft, but ultimately an aircraft that could have done a lot more for the unit, uh, per unit as it were. And if, it, if we'd seen that aircraft uh, continued, future generations of the TSR2 would probably have, uh, would would probably be in service into the 2010s, much, much, much similar to the, how the Tornado's progressiveness as well has Tornado's legacy has an RAF service went as well. Yes, the TSR2, what would have been? Um, again, I know it's very, very speculative in what I've been talking to you about, but um, I think it's, it's good to dream in some ways. Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. We're running a little, a little early, so I'm going to produce a, a counterfactual of my own mm -hmm. against yours, uh, and that's for TSR is procured, an enormous cost, and there is no money for any more aircraft. And the rest of the British defence aviation story from that point on is one of dependency on America. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned Harrier, of course, that's a project which the Americans become involved in, develop it further. Potentially they now see a threat from the British aviation industry, which you identify, and they decide to kill Harrier 
by making sure they outcompete against it. They also undercut any sales of TSR2, Severano exports, and it's continually, every single time a British project is put forward, there isn't the money to complete it. That's the story which is actually within TSR2 itself. I think the, the idea is a lovely one, that mm -hmm. if TSR2 had launched, all these things could have come through perfectly. But I think actually, when you look at it, the danger is that there isn't any opportunity to develop anything further. I think that's the real lesson for me from TSR2, is that the, the sheer cost and unit price of it would have precluded any further development of meaningful platforms in the short or medium term. And the mechanisms to develop real platforms like Eurofighter wouldn't have been there. Mm -hmm. And so I also think when you look at the, the cost for the fleet, the TSR2 would have been enormously expensive. No, I'd agree. So, I mean, I I'd think agree. that's the, the counterfactual yeah. I, want to, I want to put against you. Do you feel that really looking at it with a more cynical bend, actually if TSR2 had entered into service, it would have been the death knell of the entire aviation industry in Britain, including, you mentioned an Airbus opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think actually the real threat there is that the civil aviation sector is also on the cut. I think for me, TSR2 is a really dangerous moment and Labour absolutely got it right. But Conservatives should have killed it much sooner. And I know there'll be people in here who are mortified by that suggestion, <laughs> but that's, that's what I would suggest. And I, yeah. I, know, I know that the, uh, the, the TSR2 is it's a wonderful aircraft. It looks at it, it's a fantastic looking aircraft. And so there's a lot of romance around it. And I absolutely understand where you're coming from, but I think yeah. I really want to push back with this extra time and say, do you feel you can defend when you're challenged do you feel you can defend that picture of a forward-looking British aviation industry, given the threats that would then have come in against it? Um, I think potentially you have to look at the sort of foreign exports of the TSR2. You've got to, you very much got a what if if the Australians had got had stayed in bed with the program. If they had, you, you would have probably seen you would have seen the unit per unit cost of the aircraft drop. Um, you've also um, if there had been greater unity across the services, particularly between the Royal Navy and the RAF, um, and having controversial figures like Zolly Suckerman and Lord Mountbatten in the picture trying to undercut the programme, I think you, they were shooting the aviation industry in the foot at the time as well, just to further their own gains and the Buccaneer programme. You do make a very a good, strong case. Uh, I mean, personally, when I was making this, um, this presentation, I'm very much the opinion that the TSR2 was dead in the water because of just because of the circumstances stated that the Labour government were right to cancel it. But I'm very much playing devil's advocate here in this in this setup and somebody has to sort of maybe have a more flowery output to the, the programme. But for the TSR2 to be a success, with the Americans being the way they are, very much so with um, they have to be the best and they always will undercut even their best friend really in a special relationship in the UK, they probably would have done what you say. They would have undercut not just military programs, but civil programs as well. Yeah, I, I do struggle to defend it personally. Yes, being humbly. Lovely stuff. I enjoyed that immensely. This is not a what if, and I love playing what ifs. And I could do you, I could do you one exactly on the cancellation of the BAC three eleven, but uh, we won't go down there. It's the it's the what was, and I think you're a little unkind about the resulting effects of the tornado typhoon. Um, linkage. Uh, yes, we, 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 we lost a certain amount of capability through collaboration, 
And certainly the economies of collaboration proved to be a little less attractive in practice than they were in theory. Mm -hmm. but one thing I think the tornado typhoon linkage ensured was that Wharton as a world-class design centre stayed intact. And I think that was that was any time I really felt, you know, a little, mm, that's, that's going a bit too far. Um, the Germans certainly got technology, they got production, but they never really got the know-how. And in fact, I think that, that BA Systems can now lead the Tempest, for better or for ill, I will say that immediately, and that Manching could not, you know, could not lead anything out of, uh, out of a major programme, and I will be so dependent on Dassault to produce equivalent, is I think an indication that the Wharton ethos that was beginning to come together in 1963-64, uh, was an asset that was well protected in the long term. Opportunity. I think the tornado is going to rear its head here. I want to start by saying I also love historical what-ifs, so I didn't mean to undercut you in my, uh, <laughs> in my presentation. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Keith. Um, I think uh, it's, it's an interesting um, what-if that you've constructed. But I, I really don't think the, the grounds for the Eurofighter Typhoon program, especially not earlier, because you, you put the figure of 82 rather than 83 for, um, for this was, was it the start of it or the introduction of introduction. a introduction? Yeah. So I don't, I don't think there are grounds for a collaborative program. How does tornado not exist? I mean, the, the kind of, um, political negotiations at the high level between states around tornado are so fractious and so wobbly and so precarious. And at the same time you have American vendors, and French vendors really nipping at the heels of European countries, especially Italy and Germany. I think if the tornado doesn't exist, and if Britain swans off with its own aircraft, with its own white elephant, I don't think the, the uh, typhoon program exists. I think they go a completely different direction. But other than that, very interesting. If I may uh, just sort of clarify to what you say, when I say it was a sort of typhoon program which you're predicting more of a tornado slash typhoon. Um, yeah, the, you're, interesting enough that your prediction of a, of, a, of, a, of a UK fighter about 75 is only, only three years out an actual proposal by BA Systems on the P110, uh, P, no, P110, um, sort of F16 lookalike. Um, which they were trying to flog as a collaborative program with a bunch of Arabs during the early early 80s. Mm -hmm. Thank you. George Cox, I found that very interesting. I actually uh, started my, my career with British, with Vickers Armstrong, then British Aircraft. I actually worked for a small time on TSR2. And if you look back on the history of the British aircraft industry um, and all the lessons to be learned, you mentioned the Plowden Report. We'd say we were too small to... The uh, home market was too small to... Uh, sustain the industry. Uh, in practice, if you look at what happened, it's too small when the product is designed for that home market. If you look at our real successes in aviation, uh, you look at um, the, the Hunter, you look at the Hawk, massive world sales. You look at the lesson of the French. You know, the Mirage is a general purpose fighter. Whereas we worked on things, both civil and military, like the Trident and the VC-10, lovely airplane, designed for home market, doesn't sell. Mm -hmm. And you look at the, the Lightning, terrific piece of technology, designed for a short-range point defense, which no one else wants. So the lesson of this is surely to take a plane like TSR2, which is designed for our specific requirements, and you mentioned Australians, I don't see many others thinking of buying it, surely it's just the wrong route to have gone down. Potentially, yes. 
Um, I think when you've got the UK, when you've got the UK um, developing an aircraft for its own specifications, that you say, and very much when you don't have that collaborative input where other nations say we want it to do X, Y, and Z, very much like Tempest is going down the road now, really, um, you are going to set yourself up to fail completely, really, with the, the UK, or trying to, really. It's trying to sort of smash a square peg into a round hole, as it were, with the UK trying to sell an aircraft like the TSR2 to foreign buyers like that, yes. 